Hello and welcome back to another special edition of Behind the Switch. I'm Spencer Fields. And I'm Andrew Grandall. Today we'll be finishing off a discussion based on Dr. Frank Ackerman's terrific new book, Worst Case Economics. If you haven't had a chance yet, we'd encourage you to check out part one of this special look into Dr. Ackerman's work in our previous episode entitled Worst Case Economics Part 1, Cognitive Bias. Our last episode revolving around Frank's work was not exactly filled with the most cheerful subject matter we've covered at Behind the Switch. We focused on cognitive bias, the origins of flaws in our economic and environmental modeling, why humans assess risks poorly, and potential climatological tipping points. And while it may not have been our most uplifting episode to date, we feel strongly that in order to make progress, sometimes you need to face down uncomfortable realities. We need to understand the magnitude of the problems we face, no matter how large, so that we can appropriately and adequately design solutions moving forward. And moving forward is what this episode is all about. While it can be disheartening to be reminded of the intrinsic flaws in human reasoning, it's important to remember that the future is wide open, and we are as up to the task of tackling environmental problems as we allow ourselves to be. In fact, perhaps the most common qualities that contributed to the success of humans across millennia is the ability to adapt, collaborate, share knowledge, and endure. Too often when we talk about global warming in blunt terms, it can feel like an unavoidable catastrophe. But in reality, that is not the case. Humans have banded together to succeed through adversity in the past, and we have every ability to do the same in the future. Let's hear a few more clips from Dr. Ackerman's webinar on worst-case economics. Before we talk about solutions, let's first listen in on Frank's rueful analogy for our current environmental trajectory. Several years ago, I proposed a name for a new climate economics model, which would have had the acronym ACDC. Cooler heads prevailed as my colleagues insisted that many people would either not recognize or not appreciate references to heavy metal bands. Nonetheless, the ACDC model would have allowed one improvement in the jargon of climate change, the scenario of policy inaction leading to a steadily worsening climate, blandly referred to as the reference case or business as usual in many models, could have been named for the band's 1979 album, Highway to Hell. The title song offers one metaphor hinting at the problem of irreversibility, a season ticket on a one-way ride. Unfortunately, the song's relevant insights end there. The lyrics extol an adolescent vision of hell, as daring to be bad enough to associate with unwholesome characters your mother warned you against, such as rock stars with their depraved lifestyles. Shortly after Highway to Hell was released, the lead singer for ACDC drank himself to death, so your mother may have been onto something. Our society to date is daring to be bad enough to ignore the risks that the scientific community has warned us against. In the absence of sensible climate policies, we have bought our season ticket. We are traveling that highway on a one-way ride toward ever higher temperatures. The tipping points at which irreversible losses occur are scattered along the road, some farther ahead than others. One form of uncertainty concerns the threshold for particular tipping points. How far down the highway is each potential disaster located? Another uncertainty involves the speed at which the world is warming. How fast are we moving on our satanic road trip? We are driving into a fog without a working speedometer. So, lots more stories. If you wanted to have a three-hour talk, I could uh, tell a lot more of that. But let's move on to the final section about policy analysis, where I think the finance and climate stories come together. They're somewhat separate, parallel stories up to this point. 
but many of the policy questions that they raise in responding to these extreme events come together quite nicely. The uh, primary sin of the conventional economics that I talked about earlier in this arena is leading to the formalisms of cost-benefit analysis that have become so important in U.S. policy debate. Um, now, when we talk about U.S. policy and decision-making, I'm, of course, talking about normal administrations. I mean, who knows what's going on right now, but um, back when grown-ups ran the government and uh, in the future when they will again, um, we have this requirement that costs and benefits for all major regulations have to be evaluated and compared and passed on by gatekeepers in the Office of Management and Budget before regulations are allowed. And this process of monetizing and comparing the costs and benefits of regulation fails for multiple reasons. I refer to them here as old problems and new problems. Old problems basically means I've written about them before in other books and I just spend one chapter reprising them here, but that they remain important. We almost always face an asymmetry of relatively complete calculations of costs versus a very partial accounting of benefits. <clears throat> we have ethical problems that arise immediately of pri pricing priceless values. And a simplistic economics is widely used in which externalities are valued at zero by default, proposed New valuations are subject to lengthy, contested debate. You can spend years of lawyers, millions of dollars, arguing about the valuation of one pollutant that should be used for cost-benefit terms. Those are all crucial, perhaps the most important, but I want to focus here on the new problems, meaning that I haven't written about them before, uh, related to extreme events. Cost-benefit analysis requires an average or an expected value, a process that trivializes extreme events. Meaningful numbers for these extremes are not always available, but at, for the old and the new problems, if all you have is a calculator, everything looks like a number. So for instance, if you wanted to do cost-benefit analysis of financial crises, as some courts and some law and economics scholars now propose, you would have to know how large is a typical crisis. You might need to know something about how much was a policy going to do to avoid a crisis, but you would need to know how big was the crisis. And the problem here is that the size of future crises is deeply uncertain. The power law pattern for price changes that we saw, which applies across many scales, that's been confirmed over and over again, this power law distribution, the fat tail distribution, means either the average size doesn't exist or the variation around the average is absurdly large. In some cases, the, the variance is literally infinite. But cost-benefit analysis absolutely requires an average. Uh, what happens if you calculate a weighted average across all possible scenarios? You end up weighting each scenario's losses by the probability of it occurring. So this works really well if the probabilities of the scenarios are normally distributed so that you can essentially ignore everything beyond about four standard deviations, as we saw in those graphs, uh, which is to say the very worst case risks are extremely unlikely. In reality, with the power law, where you can't rule out those extremes, the worst cases can't be ignored. Catastrophic losses have only moderately low probabilities, and as you look at worse and worse scenarios, the damages are getting worse 
faster than the probabilities are getting small, so their contribution to the sum keeps getting larger and the sum never converges. That is essentially what happened in Martin Weitzman's dismal theorem about climate economics, where for exactly that reason, when he tried to sum or integrate uh, damages over the full range of possibilities, the damages get so large and we can't rule out the worst cases with enough confidence so that he found that the the weighted average value of reducing climate risk, reducing emissions, could be literally infinite, a conclusion which neither Weizmann nor anyone else has really figured out what to do with. Frank makes so many great points here. How do you price that which is priceless? How do you quantify the likelihood of events that are inherently unpredictable? And how do you correct the course of financial paradigms that have led us down a path of unsustainability? There could be many different viable answers and endless discourse on the best methods. But one thing is for sure, our way of measuring value needs to move beyond models of immediate profit and into long-term viability for future generations. If our current paradigms are moving us in the direction of environmental volatility, or a highway to hell, as Frank puts it, what is it all for anyways? There are ways we can be more holistic in our approach to valuation, along the lines of how the world came together to forge agreements for the common good, such as the Montreal Protocol. And there are ways to be more prepared for unpredictable weather events. Being overly precautious can have downsides, but when it comes to climate change, precautions make sense. Let's listen to another excerpt where Frank talks about the economics of precautionary models. A second example of more or less the same thing is Cuba's hurricane preparations. Cuba is not particularly distinguished in terms of macroeconomic performance, but it's a world leader in preparing for hurricanes for the same reasons, the efficiency of central planning when faced with an existential threat. That when a hurricane is coming, the hurricane forecasters go on radio and TV, tell everybody what are the most likely storm tracks. People who live there are all evacuated. Every motor vehicle on the island can be used for evacuation and often is and they have annual drills preparing for it. They have community groups uh, trying to improve on the uh, gaps in their hurricane preparations. One Cuban estimate says that their death rate from comparable hurricanes is 15 times lower than in the US. The notion that it's expensive to make these changes is based on assuming that the status quo was optimal. You're at the top of the mountain, there's nowhere to go but down. Since, in fact, the status quo is far from optimal, change may not be nearly as costly as we think. And Keynes, again, said that in an ideal world, economists would become like dentists, by which he meant apolitical technicians who had skills but didn't set society's goals. Developing least cost strategies for reducing carbon emissions, for solving financial crises, is an honorable uh, task, you know, many interesting, well-paid technical careers will spin out of those enterprises, but it's not being the decider. It's not calculating the optimal goals for society. So precautionary models work to everyone's benefit. When a major storm comes through, it can absolutely cripple an island or a country's infrastructure and significantly stunt its economic growth, as we are unfortunately seeing with Puerto Rico in the aftermath of a particularly severe hurricane season. By being thoroughly prepared for worst-case scenarios, like Cuba, it's possible to prevent the worst-case economic impacts of major storm events and help speed recovery after a storm. With climate change bringing around more extreme weather events more often, 
a case for precautionary economic models becomes much more reasonable and to the advantage of those who choose to use them. Let's listen back in to Frank as he finishes his talk off with a quote from perhaps an unexpected source. Shall we surrender to our surroundings or shall we make our peace with nature and begin to make reparations for the damage we have done to our air, to our land, and to our water? Clean air, clean water, open spaces, these should once again be the birthright of every American. If we act now, they can be. The price tag on pollution control is high. Through our years of past carelessness, we incurred a debt to nature, and now that debt is being called. We can no longer afford to consider air and water common property, free to be abused by anyone without regard to the consequences. This requires comprehensive new regulation. It also requires that, to the extent possible, the price of goods should be made to include the costs of producing and disposing of them without damage to the environment. Pause for a moment and think about who you think originally wrote that. The answer is that's Richard Nixon's State of the Union address in 1970. And so, as I say at the very end of the book, uh, recognizing that Nixon not only made that speech, but launched the EPA, approved the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and a lot of the rest, Richard Nixon, despite all his sins, was able to take a few giant steps toward a greener and cleaner future. Surely we can do even better. The Nixon administration, to put it lightly, was not known as a particularly progressive one. However, at the same time, public consensus was high that environmental degradation in the United States had gotten to a point that something major needed to change. The Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, was established in 1970 to attempt to bring a once pristine continent back to its former glory, to the benefit of everyone who inhabited it. International agreements to prevent environmental calamity have been successfully achieved before. In the 1970s, scientists discovered that chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, a substance used for refrigeration, was depleting the Earth's ozone layer through its breakdown in the stratosphere. The stratospheric ozone layer absorbs most of the ultraviolet B radiation sent to the Earth by the sun, protecting human inhabitants from a whole host of issues such as skin cancer and the destruction of crops. Though chemical giant DuPont battled fiercely to discredit the scientists sounding the alarm around the damages of CFCs, the international political community ultimately resolved to take action. In 1987, the Montreal Protocol was signed, and countries around the globe took the action necessary to reduce CFC use and replace it with substances that would not deplete the ozone layer of the Earth. Decades later, we are seeing what was once a massive hole in the ozone layer above Antarctica slowly shrinking to a fraction of its former size. International agreements can work, and work well. Despite the Trump administration's recent divergence from the Paris Climate Agreement, the world as a whole is finally recognizing climate change as the major threat it is and collectively taking action. When the evidence is clearly presented and the threat is viewed as genuinely existential, humans can take action on a global level. We are not destined to repeat the mistakes of our past or to continue down roads of collective peril. While humans may have flaws of reasoning, we also have a great many positive traits which can be channeled towards fundamental shifts in the ways in which we operate. If we can leverage awareness, healthy communication, education, innovation, and collaboration, regardless of the challenges, there's almost nothing we can't achieve. There's a transformation happening around the world. Major sectors of our global economy, from agriculture to shipping, finance to transportation, are shifting towards sustainable practices. 
There's a collective desire to change and benefits for everyone to reap from increased personal and environmental health to robust, inclusive economic growth. Over the next few seasons, Behind the Switch will be taking you behind the global switch to sustainable practices, so be sure to stay tuned. We'd like to thank again Dr. Frank Ackerman for letting us highlight his terrific talk, and we encourage all of you to purchase a copy of his new book, Worst Case Economics. Thanks so much for joining us for another special edition of Behind the Switch. 